Esteemed Champagne House Veuve Clicquot, known for celebrating boldness, creativity, and entrepreneurial spirit, turns the spotlight on female business leaders with the Veuve Clicquot Bold Woman Award, an international program dedicated to supporting female entrepreneurship and identifying future role models who embody the brand's founder, Madame Clicquot's courage and business savoir-faire. In 1805, Madame Clicquot demonstrated great courage and tenacity when she took the reins of Maison Veuve Clicquot after the death of her husband, at a time when women could neither work nor hold a bank account. The winners will travel to Reims, France for a three-day immersion in the history and tradition of Maison Veuve Clicquot and to participate in the Bold Forum to share their stories and network with other winners from around the world. Head to the link in the episode description to find out more. That's essentially where the buy yourself the damn diamond comes from, because I think when you invest in yourself, you can invest more in others. It's not really selfish. It really is. gives you a lot more power to be more giving. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? Buy yourself the damn diamond. Such is the gospel of Nora Sakija, CEO and co-founder of fine jewelry company Missouri. In 2015, she started her Toronto-based brand to reframe the conversation around jewelry, mainly around the idea that the industry was built for men gifting women. Instead, Nora wanted to empower women to celebrate themselves. This notion of agency and self-expression is precisely what has grown Missouri into one of the most exciting and dynamic lifestyle brands today. Nora, who is a third-generation jeweler, has proven her business thesis and built her company into a global direct-to-consumer brand that has not only influenced the purchasing behavior of women, but completely turned the industry's distribution model on its head by pioneering weekly style drops. Today, Missouri has been able to amass a following of brand evangelists like Oprah, Bella Hadid, Ariana Grande, and Lizzo, along with thousands of other women who believe in Nora's mission. On today's episode, Nora joins us to discuss how her upbringing shaped her approach to design, building a company while raising a family, and what it takes to create a buzzworthy it brand. Okay, hi Nora, how are you? Hi Lance, how are you? I'm doing really well, how's it going with you? It's going, it's a little bit of an interesting day in Toronto today, um, but I am so happy that the we- I'm more of like a fall person, so the weather changing is a good thing for me. Uh, I grew up in the mountains, so the the chillier the weather the weather i'm i'm a happy clam how about you <laughs> i'm i'm the complete opposite i grew up <laughs> in warm weather so i'm really sad to say goodbye to summer but you know yeah, yeah. it's actually been quite mild in toronto for fall so i'm it, i'm loving that <laughs> it really has and are you're zooming in from toronto today yes yes <laughs> well, it's so nice to be chatting with you. We uh, The last time that we spoke was back in 2019 when we did the shoot at your office. And so it's been uh, too long since the last time we spoke. And obviously, we've experienced a global pandemic on top of a few other things and obviously um, the growth of your business, too. So I want to uh, talk about that and your journey and you know your philosophy on business and motherhood and everything. But 
why don't we start with, you know, you're obviously the founder of Missouri, a direct consumer jewelry brand that empowers women to celebrate themselves. When you founded the brand, um, what did you want to do that no one else was doing at the time? Yeah, so, you know, I'm, as you probably know, I'm a third generation in my family to work in jewelry. And so that gave me a lot to think about and just watching how the jewelry industry worked from the inside. Um, and one thing that I came to realize is that traditionally we've been, we think of fine jewelry as this exclusive category, something that is gifted by men for women. Um, high price points. And so all of these components didn't necessarily resonate with me. So I took a detour, I studied engineering, and I wanted to come back with a fresh perspective, which is a create a brand for women to buy jewelry for themselves. That was the initial premise that we wanted to start with. And, you know, since we started, 75% of the customers who buy from us are women celebrating themselves or buying gifts non-traditionally. Um, we've also built a community. We wanted to challenge the idea that fine jewelry is an occasional purchase. Uh, so we've created, you know, designs that you can wear every day. So we find that 30 to 40% of our uh, monthly revenue is from customers that we've acquired before. So we've built this community that's really connected with the brand. And these were two very important components for us to change. Right. I mean, I love that. And I love the messaging around that, making it something that is approachable, accessible, and something that people can enjoy in their everyday lives versus just a special occasion, as you mentioned. Um, since you started, obviously, the brand has really quickly grown to becoming uh, a favorite amongst a really stylish set of, of women and men, I guess. Um, and it's been worn on everyone from Oprah and Bella Hadid to Selena Gomez and Lizzo. Um, so you've really created an incredible, incredibly popular brand that has obviously resonated. What do you think it takes to create a buzzworthy, you know, it brand that people come back to, regardless of whether it's direct consumer or even a B2B service? Um, what matters in that equation? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the things that I, I'm a huge believer in that progress across the board has a compounded effect over time. And so we've always been super focused about progressing on all of areas of the business. But there are some core components that I think we have been very diligent about from the beginning. One of them is uh, being obsessed about the customer experience. And what I define customer experience with is everything from brand, marketing, and even customer service and even technology. All of these components were in-house in the business from the beginning. The brand, we, you know, one of our founding team members is our chief creative officer, Justine. So she's been there since inception. And so that is a huge component of really starting the brand, being close to the community, evolving, and it has the genuine feel. We always say majority on the inside is majority on the outside. And having that in-house as opposed to outsourcing it is really a very important pillar, in my opinion, to create a brand that is genuine and will stand the test of time. So everything from product design, photography, content is in-house. Then when we go to marketing, which works hand in hand, obviously with creative, it's also been in-house from the beginning. So if we take, for example, influencer marketing, we've never outsourced our relationships from the beginning. And we were able to create genuine relationships that are long-term with our community through that. So having as much control as possible over the brand and the customer experience, in my opinion, are really core components to creating something that is genuine and not manufactured and therefore naturally will resonate with your community. Right. It makes sense. Keep it in the family and then and then grow the family. 
100%. Even though it's tough sometimes to keep all of these components in the family, but I, I believe it's necessary. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's rewind a little. You, you mentioned that you come from a family of jewelers. What was that like growing up? What's your earliest memory of the family mm-hmm. business or your family working in that line of business? Um, did they ever take you to work or what was kind of interesting about that? Oh, I, I, you know, my father used to bring merchandise home to show to my mother, but also one of the memories that I love is we'd go in social settings and my father would have the diamond loop with him and, and people would always approach him to check their diamonds and the quality of their diamonds. And I've always remembered that because even if we're going out on a social setting, he always has his uh, diamond loop with him. And I think that was really great because one of the things that I learned from my father is building trust with your customers, especially with a product like jewelry, where it, it can get quite technical and where he even used to source the product. He traveled to Italy uh, to get the best merchandise. He deal directly with the diamond uh, suppliers uh, or the traders, I should say. Uh, so he was very diligent about where and how and how to merchandise the products and then how to build relationships with customers. Right. And building on that, I mean, what did he teach you, not just about jewelry and the importance of you know, keeping certain standards within your work, but what jewelry could mean to a person beyond being a, a, a bobble or, or an accoutrement? Like what, what did he teach you about the significance and I guess the symbolism and meaning behind these beautiful everyday items? Yeah, I think I think both him and my mother. So my mother loved jewelry. And so she would buy herself jewelry or get herself jewelry just because sometimes and sometimes because of the natural, you know, healing abilities of the stone. So just seeing these components was fun for me of how she connected with jewelry, not just for occasions, how she had the ability to go and sort of or even the thought to celebrate herself, uh, love gemstones for the characteristics that they are. Um, my mother actually is the one who's always uh, told me, and, and it's a premise that I think we've, we take at Majuri, it's not selfish to invest in yourself. It's not selfish to build your own career and to have your own thing. And I think that is, that's essentially where the buy yourself the damn diamond comes from, because I think when you invest in yourself, you can invest more in others. It's not really selfish. It really is, gives you a lot more power to be more giving. I think learning that from her has been really, really important for me. Mm -hmm. Buy yourself a damn diamond. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, what we say at Majuri. Yeah, yeah. So you studied industrial engineering before you went into the business of jewelry. Um, Do you think that your background in engineering gave you a unique perspective POV? And if so, in what way? Yes, I, I always describe myself as an engineer because I think engineering is just a way of thinking. And it, it just helps me be analytical, um, break down complex problems into smaller components. But where I essentially see myself using it or had used it in the past is building our supply chain, the processes. I focused on the infrastructure also in the business with the team and not just necessarily what the customer facing components. And I think, you know, being able to spend time on compressing our supply chain helped us pioneer the drop model in fine jewelry we, are, we essentially introduce new products every single Monday, um, which is not necessarily heard of in the fine jewelry industry. Everyone thinks of, again, around the same premise of larger collections, super, you know, once, twice a year, four times a year. 
Um, and I think bringing that compressed supply chain, bringing the idea of freshness to our community really is another component, how we, we connect with our customers on the self-purchase, on the newness, on the freshness. So there is a lot that I thank my, my engineering background for, but I think that's the most evident one for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. I want to circle back to that um, in a little bit, but you know, obviously all these roads led to you starting the company. What did your initial research around consumer buying habits and purchasing behavior show that revealed a gap in the market for you? When we first started the business, uh, there was a report that was released by McKinsey, and there's actually a second report that was uh, released by Business of Fashion and McKinsey just recently. And so the report is about the status of the jewelry industry. And one of the key things that I learned from that and sort of reconfirmed why we should exist is essentially the jewelry industry is over $180 billion industry. So this is just to demonstrate the scale of it globally. It doesn't mean all of it is, is our addressable market, but only 20% of that is actually branded jewelry. The remainder is mom and pop shops or smaller local brands. And so there wasn't or there isn't a brand that's actually catering to the next generation. And that fragmentation was a huge opportunity for us to come in and really create a net new behavior in fine jewelry. And so fast forward five, six years later, we are mentioned in the same report that's written by BOF and McKinsey about DTC is part of what's going to reduce the fragmentation and giving the example of Majuri, which is really, really rewarding to see Majuri being mentioned there. So since you founded the company in 2015? Yes. What have been some of the major milestones up until today that you're really proud of? I always think about our journey. And one of the key things that was, even though we raised over 48 million in funding, one of the key milestones for me was raising the first million dollars. And the reason why I always mention this is because it just honestly was one of the toughest experiences that I've had where I'm going pitching venture capitalists about fine jewelry. Everyone else is going and pitching AI and technology. And so I had to really prove myself and really educate about the market. And it took me quite some time. It took me over six months to, to raise one million. And I think there's two things uh, that sort of helped me. One is, quite frankly, being underestimated sometimes is beautiful. It just adds more fuel to the fire. <laughs> and the second thing, when I look back, having limited capital in the beginning compared to our peers is actually creates healthy constraints. It really mm. gets you to think about what adds value versus sort of following what I call vanity metrics. And I think it got me, the, the difficulty of that process got me into a discipline to really think what adds value to our customers and stick to that. And we still live by that. What adds value is really what we're going to go behind. Right. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine, I, you know, the premise of pitching for a seed round and trying to convince investors of the potential of this big opportunity that you had kind of discovered. Where did you find the confidence and really conviction to advocate for yourself and your vision in the way that you did? I had and still have tremendous conviction for Majuri because what I I come from the jewelry industry. I read so much about it. Um, I know that this is something that will work. And that just gives me fire to keep going. And I know for, for, for a fact that this is something that will work and something that will mean a lot. And I just essentially, what someone once told me, every no gets you closer to a yes. And I just like run with that. 
I remember one time I was just remembering this the other day, someone in the beginning kind of alluded to the fact, you know, things were challenging and was like, you know, you should maybe close this. And I'm like, I looked at him in the eye. I don't know how I had so much courage. I said to him, this will be big. This will be a big company and you will see. I just really believe in it. Yeah. Sometimes I think with entrepreneurs, it's really a little bit of blind faith and, and the courage and conviction just to really see your vision through. That yeah. is what carries you through. Yeah. Sometimes ignorance is bliss because you don't know what you're going <laughs> through, <to>, right? <laughs> right, right. So what did you take from that experience uh, into your subsequent funding rounds? Being focused on what really matters for the business really helped us set the business in a different position where we now have traction. When we had, you know, Series A, we had product market fit, early signs of success. And so it, the numbers and the brand positioning and the community would speak for themselves. The healthy constraints that we've had in the beginning really set us up to be in a position where I don't have to fight that much to convince people because it's already showing progress. It's already sh showing success. And that's honestly the best thing that we've done for the business. Yeah, and I think in a lot of discussions that we have with entrepreneurs that have raised uh, various rounds of funding, it is definitely the seed round that they've mentioned is the biggest hurdle. And it's, what did they say? Making your, your first million is harder than making your first 10 million or something. 100%. It's the, the initial phases. Yeah, yeah. And so when you started Majuri, you know, you were a first-time founder. Um, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned about what it takes to run a successful company? Um, I always call myself a constant work in progress, um, which means that you always, in my opinion, have to have the a growth mindset, always asking questions and always growing, because especially as a first time founder, I think absorbing as much knowledge as possible and surrounding yourself with amazing people who can help you bring it to reality. But I think if I would narrow down to one characteristic that I see with myself or even the early founding team and the existing team is really resilience. And I think if we're taught anything about in the past 18 months, it's resilience is really a super important um, component to building a business, to overcoming challenges and evolving from there. Yeah. And as you've grown the company, obviously, you've had to bring on a great team, find great people. But at the end of the day, this is kind of still your baby, your company. How have you learned to let go and delegate to your team, delegate tasks that, you know, normally you would be, you know, you would be doing yourself at the beginning? Yeah, and it's, it's a great question. I mean, in the beginning, when you start to get to that point, it feels a little bit bittersweet, because you're, you're the person doing it at all. But I think, one, just recognizing and making peace of the idea. What I care about at the end of the day is building a really successful um, mission-driven business. And my job is to bring the best people and create the best conditions for them to excel. That's part of my job. And just recognizing that is really, really important. My job is to remove hurdles from in front of them, bring the best specialized people and, and let them essentially fly. And so I take pride in bringing the best people. I think it's success for me when I have, when we, you know, someone very talented joins, joins the team. And I think this is sort of the, the switch that happens is how do you define your role over time and what are your KPIs as a, as a CEO or, and what does that mean for the business? Um, and so evolving those KPIs is a way for you to, you know, feel that you're doing the right things. Yeah. And I guess kind of, it all kind of comes down to, you know, running a successful business is essentially 
just really good people management as well and understanding how to bring out the best qualities uh, in people and find the best talent that, you know, the people that are better at doing what they do than you are and, and recognizing that and identifying that. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you're, you, you know, you haven't spent your career specializing in a specific field. So it's only normal and natural for you to, you know, want to bring someone who's super specialized in the core components of your business. So you have three children together with your husband and co-founder, Majid. How has motherhood changed the way you think about running a business, if anything? I have actually uh, twin girls. They're two and a half years old. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, with my co-founders, my husband. And so I don't have a separation between business and personal life. And that's not to say that I don't have boundaries, etc., um, but it's really for me, I love what I do. Majid loves what he does. And, and so having that is really helpful. And what it's helped me, I think being a mother, we chose to have children at the time when the business was growing and, and we had a larger team that we can depend depend on. And so being a mother helped me become more effective at delegating. Uh, it's helped me be more efficient. It brings naturally brings another layer in terms of empathy. And I think that's super important right now for every single leader. You know, I always say, and, and this sounds this sounds crazy. I always say, I, I want the, uh, what is it? Have the cake and eat it too. Right. right? So right. I think it's possible to do both 100% if you can create the right boundaries. So I'm very diligent about when I'm spending time with my twins, with my girls, I am 100% present with them. And that makes me feel a lot better about going to work and being 100% present at work. I find my own ways to to make both coexist. And being, you know, a the founder of a company and a mother, has that revealed what may be missing when we have these conversations around supporting moms in the workplace? Where do you think progress needs to be made or where do you think dialogue needs to be opened up when we're talking about these things? You know, I'll start off by saying it's super important. We have a 75% female workforce. And so it's been very, very important for us to be supportive. And I'm a mother and I know exactly what that is. So we offer maternity and paternity leave. Um, and so I think that the, also the paternity leave is super important. So yeah. it's very important to focus on both. And we offer the employee benefits remain the same. We have a top package. We also recognize that when people come back, uh, they need time to transition. So we have a transition time for people when they when they decide to come back to work. When we were working in the office, we had private areas for pumping, um, etc. To me, it sounds crazy to have something different. Uh, like this is this is the basics. Um, right. When I went fundraising at one point, I remember someone asking me if I, you know, before children. Are you planning on having kids and especially because me and my husband run the business and so to me that was obviously a super negative sign and i'm not going to take funding from this person because i want to be treated like a whole human being someone with a life someone yeah. who wants to be a mother who can be a mother and also can be successful it's impossible to operate a business in this day and age without having that as part of the culture without having that part of support for mothers and fathers 
Yeah. And also, you know, inevitably life happens. We don't see ourselves as human silos where, you know, our identity and everything that we do exists within just kind of one role. Obviously, a lot of these things intersect across each other and that's just life. A hundred percent. And I think to be honest, flexibility is really key. Uh, and I think it's naturally going to become the case with, with after working from home, but for parents having that flexibility where I don't flinch if someone wants to attend a milestone for their children or be at home with them. Like that's, that's life. That's how, what we should be doing, what we should be supporting so that people feel more productive at work. Yeah, definitely. What do you think are some you know, misconceptions about motherhood and entrepreneurship that need to be dismantled based on your own experience? Yeah, I think that they cannot coexist in harmony. I mean, listen, it's difficult. You need the right ecosystem and support system around you but I think they can coexist. About motherhood on its own, I think there's a lot of labels. Um, There's a lot of definitions of what a good mother is. It's a misconception in my opinion. I think mothers have a great gut feeling about what their children need. And I think giving giving each other a break about that, less judgment is super important. I I love the idea of breaking the rules and really not having rules. You define your own rules. You define your own rules of what being a good mother is, what being a good entrepreneur. And I definitely sure think that they both can coexist if you have the right support system around you. Yeah. And you and your husband are unique in that you're both partners in life and in business. How did you both figure out a system to manage parenting both your your children and your company? <laughs> <laughs> We're equal partners, to be honest with you. And that's the core component of it. And we really complement each other at work. Our skill sets are very different. So it helps us to divide and conquer as opposed to doing the same thing. Uh, which is really helpful. And and at home, we're, we're really equal partners. And, you know, we, we have help as well. And so we're able to do both that way. And it it gets hard sometimes. You know, everything that is exciting sometimes can get hard. So, it, yeah. Well, just because you can do it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, right? <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. It's a lot of ups and downs. Yeah, yeah. And do you have any advice for parents who are, you know, individually ambitious in both their family and professional lives in terms of, you know, being uh, partners in both business and life or just being individually ambitious and how to manage a balance between those two? My rule is to really try to create boundaries around your time with your family and time at work so you're able to be fully there and feel great and feel productive and also carving time for yourself to re-energize. These are my my go-to methods, in my opinion. And obviously having very open conversations about your ambitions with each other from the get-go is super important uh, so that you can be a catalyst for each other. You can set expectations, but I find the boundaries component is really, really important. Yeah. And what would you say your children have taught you about yourself and, you know, what you want out of your business, what your values are, what you kind of, uh, how you prioritize the different things in your life. I learned so much about myself through my kids. One of the things is I joke about, I see so much of myself in them since they were tiny and I'm like, oh my God, this is DNA. I'm not special. It must be all DNA. (laughs) (laughs) But no, in all seriousness, I think they teach me that I have a lot more capacity than I thought I did, to be honest with you. It's just being a mother and really having that sort of really unconditional love and number one priority, no matter what, 
um, just teaches you so much about how much you're capable of. Yeah, this is this is really my number one thing is I, I feel like I can move mountains. I find myself super excited about raising two amazing girls. I want them to be uh, strong, independent, uh, kind. Like these are the things that matter to me. And I, I talk to them, they're two and a half, but I talk to them about these things. Now I'm hoping that they would uh, uh, sink in. And, you know, it's very, very important for me to see that come through uh, in their lives. Yeah. Do they have an interest in jewelry yet? They do actually. <laughs> they, learned, they learned like earrings, rings, some of their first words, I think. And it's, oh my it's, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And earlier, you know, we were talking about empathy and obviously we're you know, slowly coming out of a pandemic, we're still in it. And the last two years have been very, um, you know, lots of ups and downs. What does empathy mean to you? And how is it manifested as you've grown your company and your team, and especially over the last two years? Yeah, I think empathy, in essence, for me, it means that recognizing that different people will experience the same thing very differently. And the reason why I think that's super important is because it gives you the basis of uh, the right support. And it's all about how do we uplift each other, even if I don't understand all of the ins and outs of what the other person is feeling, but I understand that they might experience something differently. And so empathy really leads to uplifting each other, uplifting our community to feel empowered. And it's been a super important portion for our business. We focus so much on mental health in the business. We focused on bringing uh, learning and development for the team, uh, even internal coaching. We've established that um, last year. Just all of the, you know, all of the support systems that we get the support system and the infrastructure in the business as fast as possible to help with weathering the storm of the pandemic. Yeah, definitely. And what do you think, you know, in your journey so far as a business owner, what's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn, the most valuable lesson that's taking you the longest to learn? I think in a high growth business, any business for that matter, the impact of culture is really, really important. And so we've always believed in that, but just recognizing that one person can actually take it to the next level or pull it down and recognizing that people who are completely operating outside of the cultural uh, cultures of the business can have a, you know, a big impact on people around them. It was very exciting and, and also, you know, a good surprise for me when I asked people, what do you, you know, what do you really love about working here? And one of the things is the people I work with, super passionate, super committed. And I think people who are top performers, uh, people who are passionate, want to work with people who are passionate and top performers, and they want to rely on each other. And it becomes like a contagious energy. And I think protecting that is super, super important because it's not just in it for the business. It really is something that energizing energizes people within the business to come to work every single day. I think that's something that while I believed in it, and I've always been an advocate of creating a wonderful culture, but just hearing this, uh, the impact of this on our leaders, our people has was another way of looking at it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, 
kind of going back to, um, you know, when you were talking about having that blind faith and going into your seed round, you know, with all that conviction, it really seems like you knew exactly what you wanted to do and what you wanted to build. But did you always have that confidence in the vision? Um, and, how, you know, how long did it take for you to, to find your courage and find your voice? Was it something that evolved or was there a specific moment or do you think you've always had it? To be honest, I, it's not that I knew everything that I needed to do. To the contrary, I think I believed in the end goal. I believed that building the next generation category defining fine jewelry brand is something that is needed. That's what I believed. The how is the most difficult component. In the beginning of the journey, I went to San Francisco as part of 500 Startups, which is sort of a tech accelerator, essentially one of the best tech mm -hmm. accelerators ever. And what that taught me is really reinforce the thought that a lot of new things is all about experimentation. And experimentation has a high, you have to have a high appetite for failures in some of the experimentations. And I think that having that mindset of we're going to try so many different things and we're going to expect that many of them may not work um, and a smaller percentage will work, I think was super important. Uh, so I've had conviction in why we exist. I've had conviction in how it makes sense because I didn't just go about it from a brand standpoint. I really studied the market, um, but I didn't necessarily know how I'm going to get there. And I'm a strong believer in trial and error in certain instances and sometimes over planning may hinder you from actually going fast and learning the right lessons. So that's how I approach net new things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Good lessons for sure. Um, what do you think has helped, you know, has defined your success as a leader, but also as a business? There's a few moments in time. So I'll tell you smaller anecdotes, but in the grand scheme of things, as a business, as a leader, you are growing, you are you know, hitting the numbers, you are building the right plans for your team, you're bringing as much, you know, as you grow more predictability into the equation. But I think in the beginning, what was really exciting for me is when we actually used to hear from customers, I never used to think of buying jewelry for myself until you guys existed. And I know we've done a lot more, but this was such an important moment because it meant for me that what we set out to do is actually resonating with our customers. And that made me feel like successful. As a leader, I think there are so many facets to it, but some of the key things for me is when people tell me that this is the best place that I've worked at, or this is such an incredible journey, or you know, I love being part of this team, I learn a lot. These, these components make me feel that we're doing something right. Yeah, definitely. Now looking forward, what excites you most about the road ahead for you? I always see endless opportunities, to be honest with you, and I get excited about that. Um, we are now, as we, I don't know if we're even emerging, maybe learning how to live with, with COVID. You know, we're going back into doubling down on retail, which is a very exciting channel for us, being in front of our customers, learning from them, growing internationally. We just launched our first international store in London last I saw that. few weeks ago, yeah. We are carving our sustainability roadmap. We've hit some really great milestones by, you know, we've, we're using 70% certified recycled gold and supporting 100% traceable gold. You know, there's a lot of uh, exciting things that are underway at Majuri. Um, and these are some of the things that excite me. We've also launched uh, the Empowerment Fund in, in June of 2020. 
And that was a very proud moment. We essentially wanted to be part of the positive change and decided that one of the things that we want to invest in is um, education. And by education could be skills or formal education for women and non-binary people so that they can actually design their life to take charge of their life. And I feel very passionately about this. And you know, we've deployed about 300,000 and I'm really looking wow. to seeing that in the years to come. That's great. I love that answer. Um, last question. What is your mission? What's the mission of your brand? What's the bigger picture? So Majuri is fine jewelry for myself for every day. What this really means is removing the traditional rules about fine jewelry that we talked about. So being exclusive, unattainable, gifted by men for women, and really change that to a category that people can and want to buy for themselves. Um, and I find that there is something super empowering about that flipping the narrative, removing the rules, and really simply about celebrating yourself your own way. That is super important for us. Our mission is to be the number one fine jeweler brand globally for the next generation. And what this means is not just focusing on the products, that's a huge component of the business, but also our brand values and the impact that we bring to our community. Um, these are the things that we focus on and I'm really, really excited about the next phase of the business. Great. Uh, this is the last question actually, but <laughs> aside from jewelry, how do you celebrate yourself? I celebrate myself by giving myself, how do I, I'm very bad at celebrating myself. That's a <laughs> secret I will tell you, but, <laughs> but when I become conscious that I need to celebrate myself, it's about time. Time is very precious for me. And so if I'm able to carve out time for myself, whether read a book, see a friend, spend time with myself, even go to a spa, these are super important things for me. I find more, you know, as a mother and entrepreneur time and being able to block time only for me is very, very precious. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like it's weird because in this pandemic, it seems like in a way we have had more time because we've been able to be at home and shelter in place. But then at the same time, it seems like there's not enough time. So, you know, carving out and prioritizing that is is definitely important. And I agree. Um, well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for all your insight and just chatting with us. It was so nice to see you again, even though it's through a screen. And I hope we can we can do it again in person sometime soon and do another photo shoot or something fun again. Oh, I would love that. Thank you so much. This was, it was lovely to see you and talk to you. Yeah. Um, but until next time, and, and I hope everything is well with you and I'm looking forward to our next chat. Thank you, Lance. Thanks, Nora. While every entrepreneur likes to think they've discovered a novel approach and a gap in a market, a few are able to execute and sustain their vision to the same extent as Nora. Today, Missouri continues to redefine the jewelry industry in countless ways, from distribution to design to community. Now, as Nora's company continues to expand alongside its message of empowerment, I'm looking forward to seeing how it'll influence not only the jewelry market, but the business landscape overall. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?